There was once an emperor, a king, who was very pride-filled and vain, and he loved clothes. In fact, as the story goes, as the history, the historical account that I have here in front of me goes, he had a new change of clothes for every hour of the day. Some of you may be familiar with which emperor I'm referring to, one that uh, the historian Hans Christian Andersen wrote about, The Emperor's New Clothes. You familiar with the book? Yeah, you probably are. Yeah, absolutely. You're a well-educated audience. This emperor, I read this to my kids last night. It was fun. It's been a long time since I'd read the story was a very vain and proud man, and he did. He loved clothes. He had uh, a new set of clothes for every hour of the day, and one day into town came two tailors who talked about the wonderful, magnificent, miraculous, glorious clothes that they could make, and only the wisest could see this clothing. If you were stupid or if you weren't good at your job, you couldn't see the fabric. You couldn't see the clothing that they made, and so they... Uh, went into town uh, talking about this, and the king heard of these men, and of course the king being the clothes uh, fashionista connoisseur that he was, he decided, well, I gotta get me some of that. So he contracted with these two tailors to come and to make him the most splendid garments that they had ever made. And of course, you get what you pay for. So these tailors asked for the finest of fabrics and gold and jewels and, and diamonds and all of these valuables to, to weave into the garments for the king. And They worked and worked, and the king one day decided that he was ready. Uh, He wanted to kind of know how progress was going, so he thought, well, I'll go see the garment. And then he stopped and thought to himself, wait a second, what if I can't see the fabric? What if I'm stupid, or what if I'm not good enough at my job and therefore can't see the garment? So he decided to send his trusted minister to see the fabric. And the minister walked into the room where the two tailors were uh, weaving the fabric, and the minister thought to himself, oh, dear, I can't see it. I must be stupid or no good at my job. Well, when the tailors asked him what he thought of the fabric, he, of course, lied and said, it's beautiful, it's magnificent. I've never seen anything like it. And uh, returned then to the king and described the fabric to the king, and the king was uh, thrilled. So one day he finally made his way into the room where the tailors were working with, with the, his court assembled there behind him and walked in and each person was individually thinking to themselves, oh no, I must be stupid or no good at my job. I can't see the fabric, but I, cannot, I can't let anyone know this. So everyone looking at nothing described how beautiful and magnificent and wonderful this fabric that these two hucksters were you know, uh, supposedly weaving in front of them, uh, they, they, uh, they gl- gloried in this fabric that wasn't even in front of them. Well, one of the king's uh, court courtiers decided that the, the best place for this new garment to be put on display was at the royal procession where the king would walk through the town um, on his parade. And so uh, the garments were, were, were built and put together and made for the king. And the, day, the great day came, and the tailors were there to help even put the garments on the king. And they told him, now, these garments, you, you'll feel like you have nothing on. They're so light. They're so delicate. You know, and of course, um, and don't worry. Don't worry. In the book, he has underwear on. Okay, so it's okay. Your children can read this book. Um, the great day comes, and the king is thinking to himself, I feel like I've got nothing on, but everyone's 
you know, describing how beautiful and wonderful these garments that I'm wearing are. And so he makes his way down through the city, and everyone has heard of this fabric. And of course, everyone is thinking to themselves, my goodness, how stupid I must be, or how poor at my job I must be. I must be the only one who can't see this garment that the king is wearing. And then, of course, you know how the story goes, right? There's a child in the crowd, and the child just yells out in front of the whole crowd, the king has nothing on. The emperor has on no clothes. And that begins to spread through the crowd, and everyone begins to realize, yeah, the reality is he doesn't have any clothes on. And the emperor does what probably most of us would have done. He just continues his parade until he gets to the end of his route, and there, uh, you know, quickly goes back to his castle in great embarrassment. Now, this king had a serious perception problem. He thought that he was robed in the finest of garments and fully clothed to everyone else's eye but his own. And everyone else there had a perception problem as well. They thought that he must be um, adorned in some great robe and some great magnificent new kind of clothing, uh, but they were all, except for this one child who called their attention to it, they were all 180 degrees wrong in their assessment. Their perception was wrong of what the king was wearing. In our passage this morning, Paul is going to be like that little child who cries out, the emperor has no clothes on, and he's going to call out to us. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, we're continuing our study in the book of Corinthians 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and we're going to look this morning at verses 6 through 13. The emperor had a serious perception problem, and so do we. We have a perception problem too, and we need this passage to address our misconception. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and I'll begin reading in verse 6, and we'll read through verse 13. Paul, of course, is speaking here. He says, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If you then received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? And these next two verses is where Paul is addressing their perception problem very pointedly. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all. Like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. Again, pointedly addressing the perception problem, verse 10. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we, we apostles, in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor with our, working with our own hands. When reviled, 
we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Two points this morning as we look and work our way through this passage. Number one, grace kills pride. Grace kills pride. And number two, grace encourages. Sorry, I forgot how I had it worded. Grace strengthens us in weakness. Grace strengthens us in weakness. That's point number two. First, grace kills pride. In verse 6, Paul says, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos. And of course, our first question is, what's he talking about? What is he applying to himself? Paul is uh, making application of what he's referred to here earlier in the the book of 1 Corinthians. He's used several analogies to describe what Christian leaders are and how Christian leaders behave, how they act. He uses the illustration, the analogy of a farmer. He uses the analogy of a builder. And then he describes servants and stewards. And he says, these analogies that I've used for Christian leaders, I'm, I'm applying those to Paul or to myself and Apollos as well. We are, we're farmers spiritually. We're, we're builders spiritually. We're, we're servants and we're stewards of the manifold riches and grace of God. We aren't kings, we aren't lords, we aren't leaders. These are the words that Paul uses to describe himself. He says, I'm applying these things to myself. And there's a reason he's doing this. For your benefits, brothers. For your benefits, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. That none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. Paul doesn't want them to go beyond what the scripture would have them think about their leaders. And of course, we've spent the last three chapters, or most of the last three chapters, talking about how we're to view our Christian leaders. I think it's interesting, when uh, David and I were trying to pick a a book of the Bible to preach through uh, during this interim time, um, we weren't quite, it wasn't quite like eeny, meeny, miny, moe, but we looked at a couple different passages of Scripture, and then we both kind of agreed, hey, yeah, let's, we'll pick 1 Corinthians, that'll be, you know, that's an epistle to the church, Paul's writing, you know, we know there'll be a lot of good and practical and helpful things for us. We didn't realize at the time just how helpful this book would be and be for our church during this time of our church's um, history. See, leaders are to be respected and even obeyed as they bring the word of God to bear, but they are not a distinct or different class of people. Paul has been giving us now for over three chapters how we're to look at and think of our Christian leaders. And he says, don't go beyond what the scripture says in the evaluation of your leaders. Don't go beyond what the scripture says in any area of life, right? We would say that this should be a guiding life principle. Don't go beyond what scripture says. Reformers called it sola scriptura or scripture alone. We as Christians live our lives based on and ruled by the word of God. So here Paul is telling them, even in your evaluation of your Christian leaders, make sure you don't go beyond what the scripture says because this is what they had done and it led to party spirit and factionalism and because they had gone beyond the scripture and they had added to how they evaluated their leaders, now 
You could hold one leader up against the other. Well, this, this leader's a great blogger, or this leader's a great speaker, or this leader's a great Christian counselor, or this, uh, this, this leader has this nuance in his theology, or this leader has you know, discipled you know, 8,000 men. Or what. And now we've got our favorites, we've got our party spirit, and once there begins to be that kind of factionalism, well, then disunity begins to happen because Paul even says, so that none of you may be puffed up. I like the... the word picture that that kind of conjures in my mind you know someone kind of with an inflated chest walking around i follow so and so puffed up in favor of one against another and that's where the problem comes in right it's not so much that i really enjoy the preaching or teaching or the leadership of so and so but it's that i enjoy his leadership or his preaching against the preaching of another god gifts equips his men differently Different people are going to have different preaching styles and different leadership styles and different ways about them. But as they are faithful stewards of the manifold riches of God's grace, then they are, then they are men that God is, has called to lead his church. So don't go, go beyond what is written. Of course, that means that you know what's written. right? If you're not going to go beyond what's written, it means you've got to know what's written. And brothers and sisters, this is where we must be people of the book even as Pastor Scott preached to us last week of the value, Psalm, uh, Psalm 19, 7 through 11, and he'll continue that series with us, the value of knowing and being in the word of God. We need to know what the word of God says. Because Christian leaders are just that. In many senses, they're just regular old Christian people that God has called and equipped to serve in a certain function in the church. So it shouldn't surprise us when Christian leaders sin. Should it? It shouldn't. It's not, it's not whether or not Jeremy McMorris will sin against you. It's when Jeremy McMorris will sin against you. It's not will Jeremy ever have to come to you and apologize and ask for forgiveness for saying something inappropriate or sinful or stupid um, or doing something of like manner. No, it's, it's when he will. I, uh, I have to do it regularly with my children and my wife and there were several times in my last church where I had to make that phone call. Sister so-and-so, will you please forgive me for the, the way I responded to your comments or criticism? There was one lady who was particularly um, willing to share her disagreement with me and her uh, lack of appreciation for me, and uh, I, I didn't always respond. There was one time in particular I didn't respond well at all, and I sinned against her. That was just one um, instance there. So it's not that our Christian leaders may or may not sin. They are brothers and sisters like the rest of us. So we expect the gospel to rescue them in their sin as well. So going beyond what the scripture teaches in the evaluation of our leaders leads to pride, being puffed up. And pride leads to disunity. The old King James Version says in Proverbs thirteen ten, only by pride comes contention. So where there's, where there's butting of heads, where there's wrangling, where there's contention and strife, there is pride on the part of both parties or maybe just the part of one party, but where, where, pride, where contention exists, there is pride. This is easy for us to do, right? Paul then, he uses several questions, he employs several questions here to confront the Corinthian believers. Uh, often, a well-thought-out a well question does more to cause us to really think than even a direct statement with an exclamation point at the end, right? 
if I question you, now you're forced to think through some things. And so Paul does this. He's been doing it through the, through the book of Corinthians. He does this in many of his writings. You'll see question marks dotted throughout Romans and other his epistles. Verse seven, for who sees anything different in you? Who sees anything different in you? He's gonna use three questions right in a row here, but let's just take them one at a time. At first, this question looks like an easy rhetorical question with an obvious answer, right? No one sees anything different in you, but that isn't necessarily the case from our human vantage point, is it? When we, when we look out across this room, if you stood up here where I stand and you looked at different ones of the congregation here, you, you would see different things. You would see male and female. You would see young and old. You would see, um, you know, uh, well, I was going to say wealthy and not wealthy, but everyone in this room is wealthy. You, you, would, you would see different things. You would be able to discern differences in the uh, congregation here. We do see things that are different about each other, but consider God's perspective. He made us all. And what Paul is getting at here is there, there is no difference. You have not been made different from one another. You may see differences one with another, but God sees no difference. As he looks down from his, from his divine perspective, he sees no difference. And then the second question, what have you done, excuse me, what do you have that you did not receive? Now this one, does have an obvious answer, but we don't believe it. So the obvious answer is nothing. What do you have that you did not receive? We know the answer is nothing. Plenty of other places in Scripture teach us that there's nothing that we have that we didn't receive directly from God. Here's where Paul is going to begin making some real hammer blows at the Corinthian pride. And brothers and sisters, I think we need to feel the smart of the hammer blows ourselves. You can work hard. You can study hard. You could cheat hard. You might be smart or good-looking or rich or popular, etc. But Jesus says, without me, you can do nothing. We know that nothing is the right answer to this question, but we don't really believe it. Right? We know it. We know it's the right answer, but we don't really believe it. Right? There's a difference between knowing and believing. Right? The, the, the devil, the demons, they know that Jesus is the Son of God, but they don't believe it in a way that actualizes their faith to trust in him. We know that nothing is the right answer to the question, what do you have that you do not receive? But our lives don't, don't play out that we believe this to be true. You know why? I know that we don't believe it, and the reason is because we are proud. I say we very intentionally, okay? I've got myself right there at the top of the list. Reverend Spurgeon, C.H. Spurgeon of England, says this. Oh, believer, learn to reject pride, seeing that you have no ground for it, right? It would be like me bragging about my, you know, um, lacrosse expertise, right? You would say, you don't even know how to play the game, right? Uh, right. So, so Spurgeon says, reject pride. You have no ground for it. You don't have any reason to be proud. Have you ever met someone who acted proud about something? Often this happens in sports, right? You're talking to a guy and he's like, oh yeah, I got game. And then you go out on the court and you're like, you don't have game. Whatever thou art, this is continuing the Spurgeon quote, okay, I, 
I'm not saying this. Whatever thou art, thou hast nothing to make thee proud. Listen to this next sentence. The more you have, the more you are in debt to God. And you should not be proud of that which renders you a debtor. The more you have, the more you are in debt to God. And you should not be proud of that which renders you a debtor. Consider your origin. Look back to what you were. Consider what you had been but for divine grace. Consider what you would have been but for divine grace. So, so stop, and let's consider, okay? I'm only halfway through the quotation. But consider for a second, where would you be if Christ had not saved you? Some of you, it doesn't take a whole lot of imagination. You were a rough character before God saved you. You know where you'd be. But consider, your, your personal likes, dislikes, your, your own interests, the, the kind of the, the way you think you might sin had God not rescued you. It's not a pretty picture, but God did rescue you. Look upon thyself as thou art now. Doth not thy conscience reproach thee? Do do not thy thousand wanderings stand before thee and tell thee that thou art unworthy to be called his son? And if he had made thee anything, art thou not thereby, excuse me, and if he hath made thee anything, art thou not taught thereby that it is grace which hath made thee to differ? Great believer, thou wouldst have been a great sinner if God had not made thee to differ. What do you have that you did not receive? Nothing. Everything you have, you have received from God. James 1.17, many of you have already thought of this verse even as I've been preaching. Every good gift and every perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. We must understand and believe that everything comes to us from God. Everything comes to us from God. This is why It's perfectly appropriate when you are complimented to say in response, praise the Lord, right? Someone says, wow, that was a, you did a great job on this, or, you know, you, uh, you're so good at that, or, you know, God's blessed you in this way. The right answer is praise the Lord. Because, because we've got to deflect that praise back to the one who blessed you that way in the first place. For instance, it's no secret, many of you know that I really enjoy hunting, um, I have a really nice um, bow for bow hunting, ar- archery tackle, right? Nice bow and arrows and quiver and all the, I mean, I've got, I've got the, whole, the whole deal. Some of you have seen it. Um, if you came to me and said, Jeremy, that's a, that's a really nice bow, um, what you would need to know is this, that all of it was given to me by a friend. It, it, would, be, it would be almost inappropriate for me, for me just to say back to you, yeah, it really is, isn't it? I mean, it's nice, and I have it, and it's mine. And I mean, you know, I would, be, I would be, I think, inappropriate to not give credit back to the person who blessed me with it in the first place. It's, I didn't earn it. I didn't pay for it. I couldn't have paid for it. It's a, it's a really nice gift that was given to me. And an appropriate response in that moment is to say, yeah, my friend Ron Stepp gave me this bow. And brothers and sisters, just 
just like in so many other areas of our lives, we are so immensely blessed. I mean, we are. This room is full of unbelievably blessed people. And so we should be constantly turning our praise back to the one who has blessed us in this way. Everything we have is from God. We also need to understand that the greatest gift in the universe is ours from God as well. Right? The greatest gift that's ever been given. We're talking about grace. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. And brothers and sisters, we need to be aware of and, and recognizing of this morning how blessed we have been by grace. John 3, 16. God so loved the world that he did what? He gave. He graciously gave to those who didn't deserve it, who hadn't earned it. He gave his son so that whoever would believe in his son would not perish but have everlasting life. This is the greatest gift ever given. This is the good news of the gospel. You may hear the word gospel and not know, what does that word mean? Well, it literally means good news. And this is the good news. Not that you have to work your way up into heaven, but that God has provided a way for you to get back to himself through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. To receive this gift of grace makes you a child of God. There may be some in here this morning who have never received that gift. Well, let me assure you that Anything that you have that is a blessing is a gift from God. The Bible talks about God's common grace to all men. But to those who are his children, they've put their faith and trust in him in a saving way. This is the greatest gift of all, the gift of the gospel. The next question Paul asks, if then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Here's where our illustration of the emperor and his new clothes kind of helps us a little bit. He's marching around like he's got fancy clothes on, and he doesn't. And often, we march around like we are spiritually uh, mature. We've got our act together. We're the blessed ones, and others aren't. We're walking around as though we have on spiritual new clothes. The Corinthian church was blessed. They were blessed financially. They were in a very wealthy city, and many of them were blessed financially. They were blessed spiritually as well. But they didn't, believe, they didn't live like they believed that God was the one who gave all things. They, the Corinthian church, had been given the test of, as C.J. Mahaney would say, the test of prosperity. The test of prosperity. You can be tested in two ways. You can be given the test of adversity. Many of you have experienced that. Or you can be given the test of prosperity. And all of us have been given that. We live in a very wealthy world. Uh, Well, not the whole world isn't wealthy, but uh, our uh, western middle class, upper middle class world is an extremely prosperous world. And we, brothers and sisters, have been given the test of prosperity, and it would be foolish for us to deny or ignore that reality. We have been tested with prosperity. We've been given much. With great prosperity comes a unique temptation to pride. Now, poor people can be proud too, But often, as we experience financial prosperity, we kind of think of ourselves as what? The the self-made man, right? I mean, we even use that phrase. He's a self-made man, rags to riches kind kind of living. How do we view those with less, with less money or less education or less success, less 
less land, less expository understanding. How do we view them? Are we like the church at Laodicea? Revelation 3.17 describes them. For I say, excuse me, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. That's a perception problem. Okay? That's a big perception problem. That's this magnitude perception problem, right? You, if you say, I am rich, I'm prospered, and need nothing, but the reality is that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked, that's a problem. Emperor's new clothes kind of problem. We, brothers and sisters, are often guilty of boasting. We live as though we earned what we've got. We got what we have. We have sophisticated ways of, of boasting. We give, we give trophies or honor rolls or that sort of thing when children are young. And that, that's, that's not necessarily a problem, but what are you teaching your child when they come home with that trophy? Use it as an opportunity to teach them, to teach them. You, you could win the spelling bee because God gave you a brain that works that way. Not because you are better than your other, not, not even because you study harder. No, God is the one who has given you, he's given you the discipline to study hard. These gifts come from God. We as adults, we have our own trophies and honor rolls too, right? Our cars, our bank accounts, our jewelry, etc. None of these things are wrong. None of these things are sinful in and of themselves. But when you are enjoying those things, do you think of yourself as having earned those things and and kind of better than the other people who don't have it. I mean, I just really am. I really work harder. I've got business savvy. I went to school for a long time. I mean, I've got this. And, and so, yeah, I, you know, there's, there's some boasting that's uh, acceptable here. No, no, no. Jesus it modeled for us in Philippians 2, which is the reason we read Philippians 2 this morning. The kind of, the kind of humble servant living that we're supposed to live Jesus modeled for us in Philippians chapter 2. What would Paul say if he were to walk into our church or our town or our homes? What would Jesus say? John Calvin says, What greater vanity is there than that of boasting without any ground for it? Right? And again, this recalls to our minds the, the, peop- the you know, people we know. Uh, and again, I, I just keep thinking of like junior high kids on a playground you know i can do however many push-ups or i'm good at football or whatever and then you know the moment of truth comes and they they can't they don't have it calvin says what greater vanity is there than that of boasting without any ground for it this is cool okay so i have a john calvin quote in my notes and the next quote i I don't think anyone has probably ever quoted these two people back to back ever okay are you familiar with jeremy lynn right the new point guard for the New York Knicks, so they're relatively new, and he's like lighting it up. He's a Christian. He's an Asian-American Harvard grad who's a Christian point guard for the New York Knicks. There's never been that combination. Like, like that's, and, and certainly no one has ever quoted John Calvin and then Jeremy Lin. At least I don't think so, so I think this is cool. Jeremy Lin, who's like my, my basketball version of Tim Tebow, okay? Jeremy Lin says, we should be humble and understand that everything that is good comes from God. Now, here's what's cool. I don't know if he has this passage in mind, but the the reason he gives for being humble 
The reason he gives for being humble is this is exactly what this passage is saying. Be humble because everything you have is from God. You should live in such a way that, that people would recognize humility in you. you. Some of you need to go to your spouse, to a friend, someone who will look you in the eyes and tell you the honest truth and ask them, like, how do I come across? How do I come across? Do I come off like I'm the man because I am? We should be humble uh, and understand that everything that is good comes from God. Way to go, Jeremy Lin, my new favorite. I'm a Knicks fan all of a sudden. Understand that this is grace, being given things you don't deserve. Grace kills pride. As we understand the grace of God, it kills pride. Let Paul's words sound in your ears like the little boy's words sounded in the emperor's ears. He doesn't have any clothes on. Why would you boast as if you didn't receive it from God? You have nothing to boast in. Now, look in verse, uh, let's see here, 8. Paul says, already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. Paul's using irony here. He's using sarcasm here. He's playing the part of the two tailors, right? Oh, the, the fabric is beautiful and, you know, it, will, it looks great on you. And I think we should see, almost as it were, Paul rolling his eyes as he makes these comments. I, I don't recommend using sarcasm in your interpersonal relationships. I don't, certainly don't recommend it using it with your wife um, or even your children. But, but there are times, even in the scriptures, where where God or one of God's prophets uses sarcasm to make a very sharp point. Paul is rebuking them for living as though the, the millennial kingdom had already begun. They were living like they were you know, in, the last, in the millennial reign of God and, and they, uh, um, in, instead of uh, the kind of Christianity that Paul's going to list out for them in the last few verses that we're going to look at this morning, they, they are in their lounge chairs They're ready to go. Paul even says, and would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you, right? So Paul's saying, yeah, I wish. I wish you you were already kings. I wish we were already in the millennial kingdom of God because then, you know, Apollos and I could, could be ruling along with you. Let's skip to verse 10. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. Paul isn't bragging here. He's just highlighting how wrong their perception is. They don't see things rightly. They don't see the truth of what is true about them. Their perception is wrong because they aren't really as wise and strong and honored as they think they are. Their perspective is wrong. Excuse me. Their perception and perspective is wrong. Let me make the difference there. Their perception is wrong because they aren't really as wise, strong, and honored as they think they are. Their perspective is wrong because they think, uh, excuse me, uh, because these things aren't what's to be pursued anyway. Strength and honor and uh, wisdom is not what's to be pursued. Yet this is, seems to be what so much of the evangelical world is pursuing and jockeying for today. And I think, I think this verse is where I feel the most conviction and the most sting. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. And as, as I evaluate even my own ambition for ministry, 
I want to be perceived as strong and wise and honored. That's what I want. And it drives so much of what I, of what I do and how I think and how I pursue ministry. And the Lord has really convicted me of this recently in regards to my personal ambition. You see, ambition is good as long as it's ambition for Christ and for his kingdom, right? We want leaders who are ambitious. But Jeremy has been ambitious for Jeremy McMorris Ministries, right? The advancement of JMM, Jeremy McMorris Ministries. The Lord has used several things, but, but even this verse very sharply in my own life. Here, the apostle Paul is saying, no, 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 I'm, I'm weak, I'm considered foolish, and I'm in disrepute because of what I'm pursuing in Christ. Paul is, even uh, as he uses the, this language, the, the term fool, um, the term weak, the term disrepute, Remember, in earlier chapters here in 1 Corinthians, he talks about how the message of God is considered foolishness and the wisdom of this world is considered foolishness to God and those who are weak are the ones that God uses. So, so Paul isn't in, in, uh, uh, mentioning something new here in this passage. He's simply saying this is, this is what it looks like. So, so grace kills pride But secondly, grace strengthens us in weakness. Grace strengthens us in weakness. And now we'll look in verse 9 and then 11 through 13. Verse 9. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. In the ancient world, a Roman leader, when he had gone out and defeated another army, when he would come back into his city, he would lead a parade. And there at the front of that parade would be him and his other you know, military leaders. And then as the parade went on, it would you know, move down through the ranks of his soldiers. But then at the very end, at the very end of the parade, the procession would be those that they had taken in their, in their combat, the, the prisoners of war. It was not a good thing to be a prisoner of war at, at Rome. It, it didn't mean that you lived in prison the rest of your life. It meant they were bringing you back for some live entertainment. Well, temporarily live entertainment. They would be brought into, of course, the Colosseum, and they would, they would fight against wild animals and lose, or fight against gladiators and lose. Um, but it was a certain death sentence as you came in at the back of that line. Paul is absolutely using that as a reference when he describes how the world sees him. Let's look at it again. We are fools for, uh, excuse me, verse nine. I think, or it's my opinion, that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all. Exhibited, put on exhibition. That's what these prisoners of wars would have been. They would have been put on exhibition as last of all. And that's, that's referring to being the, the last guy in the line of the parade. The parade's coming through, and those at the end of the line, they're the, they're the prisoners of war. They're on exhibition like men sentenced to death. Yep, still, still referring to that prisoner of war kind of uh, scene here. Because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. The, the gospel that we preach, the way we preach our gospel, the way we live in this world looks foolish and weak and disreputable to the wise and strong and honored in this world. 
we know that this isn't just hyperbole that Paul is using either, or illustrative words. The apostles were. They were very literally put to death for believing what they believed and holding what they held. Many of them were put to death in, in ways that were meant to, to excite the crowd and, and entertain those watching. They were crucified. They were sawn in half. We know that the apostles went through horrible deaths like this. And the, mili- the military illustration here of, of coming in as the, at the end of the line of a, of a Roman parade, this military illustration is right. Brothers and sisters, don't forget that we are at war. We, we really are in a real war. Now, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't look physical to us all the time. Sometimes it does. In some countries, in some places, the, the spiritual war is also a physical war. But when Jesus, when Jesus through uh, Paul in Ephesians, tells us to put on armor, to fight the good fight, when, as we read earlier in Philippians, Paul refers to Epaphroditus, Epaphroditus as our fellow soldier, there is a very real sense in which we are engaged in spiritual war. I, I love to, to read about and, and watch like the Navy SEAL kind of stuff. I think a lot of you, I mean, I think a lot of us guys anyway, there's just something in all of us that wants to at least try. You know, like I'd love to try that Navy SEAL boot camp stuff and Hell Week and, and just see how far I'd get. I've, had, I've talked to a couple guys that, that uh, have tried it and uh, neither one of my buddies made it through. Um, but uh, the stories they come back with, man, I'm asking them, you know, what was it like? And, and, and there's something I think in all of us, men in particular, that, that like a good war movie, um, that like a good uh, war book, that we, we understand the conflict between good and evil, and there's something in us that responds with, I want to be on the right side, and I want to fight, and I want to fight hard. This is a little bit of an aside. I actually think it's one of the reasons why so many young men love all the war video games, because, because we know that there is good and evil, and we want to fight on the right side. We want to conquer. We want to win. Well, God has made us to want that, because there is spiritual warfare going on. In fact, one of the words I use even as I'm training our son is I want him to be a warrior. I use the term warrior. I want Jay McMorris to be a warrior for Christ. I want him to know that there's a spiritual war that really is happening and it's going to be hard and we're going to have to fight it until the king comes back. But when the, when the, kings come, when the king comes back, the war is over. The, the certainty, the, the victory has already been absolutely um, uh, uh, won because, because we know in the, in the scripture that Christ has won the, the war ultimately for us. The apostles, excuse me, uh, we forget that we're in a war. We're told to put on army, armor, not play clothes. We're told to wrestle against flesh and blood. Excuse me, we're told we don't, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against spiritual powers. We're told to fight the good fight, not to chill the good vacation. Do you see how an accurate perception of things changes everything? Again, I'm not against play clothes or vacation, But brothers and sisters, many of us have simply added Christianity to our long list of what makes us comfortable. Eternal fire insurance is a good thing. I mean, I I want that too, so I'll add that to make my life more more, um, comfortable. And I think think we see, um, this illustration is not 100% perfect, but I think we see Christianity as, you know, if if I'm going to be a Christian, I'm going to sign up for, uh, 
Christianity and I'm, I'm in my line to, to get my Christianity. And as I, as I go through the line, you know, Jesus hands me a, you know, a beach towel and some sunglasses and, and sunblock. The line for Christianity, he's handing out swords and shields and helmets. Maybe if we preached this kind of Christianity and this kind of gospel, we'd have different results as we live out our daily Christian lives. It changes everything when we perceive things properly. We need a 180 degree perception turn. Verses 11 through 13. Paul is describing he and Apollos, to the present hour we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. I I think we would struggle with having him to preach in our church. Verse 12, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. This is not only the way of the apostles. As you're reading through this, many of you are already thinking this in your mind. This is the way of Christ. Which of those descriptors does not describe Christ? They all describe Christ, right? Hungry, thirsty, poorly dressed, buffeted, homeless, labors working with his hands. He's reviled, and when he's reviled, he blesses. When persecuted, he endures. When slandered, he entreats the Father, and he became like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. 2 Timothy 3.12, Yea, and all that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Matthew 5.11, Blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Does it ever concern you or scare you that you never are persecuted? We talked about this a little bit in Sunday school this morning. Does, does it ever even hit our radar screen that I don't, I don't suffer for my faith at all? It does me. Please understand, I'm not seeking persecution, okay? I'm not, I'm not looking for the sign-up list. And I don't think we should. But is it possible that we aren't persecuted because we aren't persecutable? Is it possible we aren't persecuted because the light we're to shine and the salt we're to be isn't very lightful or salty? I don't think lightful is a word. Simon Kistemacher in his commentary on 1 Corinthians says this, Statistics reveal that the church increases numerically and spiritually in countries where persecution, hardship, poverty, corruption, and distress are common. By comparison, church membership declines steadily in countries that exude affluence and ease. Whenever Christians are surrounded by material ease and comfort, they often tend to forget the claims of Christ. They become self-sufficient, and while maintaining a religious veneer, they've lost their love for Christ and the message of salvation. Should Christians then rejoice in persecution and affliction? They ought never to seek persecution for its own sake. But when they are obedient to the gospel, they will be rejected by the world and have to endure persecution. To them, Jesus says, rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. Followers of Jesus experience that worldly friends forsake them. They undergo verbal abuse that is frequently accompanied by physical and mental agony. 
In effect, they struggle against spiritual forces controlled by Satan. Yet they rejoice, for they will receive their reward. Should Christians then seek poverty? Not necessarily, obviously, thank goodness. Abraham is known as the father of believers, yet God blessed him with numerous earthly possessions. Similarly, Job was tried, tested, and strengthened in his faith, yet God blessed him with untold riches. Material wealth, however, should always be subservient to the cause of Christ and should never become the Christian's master. As Paul puts it in Colossians 3, 5, greed is idolatry. Jesus teaches that a believer should love God with his heart, soul, mind, and love his fellow man as himself. Then he will be rich in Christ, even though he is considered a a pauper by the world. I think those are good words for us from Dr. Kistemacher. As we conclude, Dr. D.A. Carson says that these final verses, in these final verses, Paul is outlining Uh, outlining a way of of looking at things. Three things that he says. First of all, we follow a crucified Messiah. Let's not be surprised that suffering comes our way. We follow a crucified Messiah. Our, Our leader was put to death by this world. Again, making the the message that we preach one that's considered foolish. Hey, come follow me. My leader got killed. That that sounds strange. Number two, leaders in the church suffer the most. Unlike military leaders, church leaders are on the front lines. They're not standing back at a distance giving direction. They are the advanced troops. They lead by getting in there. They get blood on their uniforms. Carson says, to praise a form of leadership that despises suffering is therefore to deny the faith. Number three, in measure, all Christians are called to this vision of life and discipleship. You don't get to pass on verses 10 through 13. I know this for certain. Look in verse 16. I urge you then, be imitators of me. We're going to talk, that's our passage for next week, so that's all I'm going to say for now. But all Christians are called to this vision of life and discipleship. The same truth that rebukes the proud Corinthians encourages the suffering of the apostles and will motivate us as disciples. Grace kills pride and grace encourages the suffering. Let me read you one verse in conclusion from the hymn, Jesus, I, my cross have taken. Jesus, I, my cross have taken all to leave and follow thee. Destitute, despised, forsaken, Thou from hence my all shalt be. Perish every fond ambition, all I've sought and hoped and known, yet how rich is my condition. God and Christ are still my own.